Judas is a complicated person. For my part, I go back and forth on my opinion of the man. Sometimes I find him to be a sympathetic character, a man who meant well but got mixed up in things that were beyond his comprehension. Other times I lean towards more traditional interpretations of the guy as a greedy, avaricious villain. Even as I prepared this sermon, I found myself shifting back and forth between the two. Does caring about money make Judas a bad person? Probably not. Does he care about money too much? I think maybe he does. Like I said, Judas is a complicated character, and so are we. And if we're being honest, we have our problems too. And we may have more in common with him than we'd like to admit. A reading from Mark. When he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could she has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you listen to how awful that sounds? Just listen to this thing. This little keyboard is just about the cheapest piece of junk that I have ever seen. It costs $14.95. I guess you get what you pay for. It weighs next to nothing. Even the plastic feels flimsy like a, a toy that you get in a cereal box or a Happy Meal. But the real problem is that it sounds like someone dragging their nails across a chalkboard. Listen to this thing. 
it claims to have two different modes, two different tones. So here's the first one. Here's the second one. They both produce the same horrible, piercing sound that makes you want to throw up. I let my son play with this thing for about five minutes, and then I had to take it away because it was driving everyone in my house crazy. I'd have returned it, but the place I got it from was about an hour away, and I had already bought it with store credit after I returned another cheap toy that didn't work properly. It seemed wiser to just cut my losses at that point, rather than roll the dice on another cheap bauble made in some horrible Chinese factory. Now, as a parent, you encounter all sorts of poorly made, overpriced toys and trinkets that are quickly discarded in a growing pile of consumer debris that author Philip K. Dick calls kipple. I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. Kipple is useless objects, he writes, like junk mail or match folders after you use the last match, or gum wrappers, or yesterday's toys. When nobody's around, Kipple reproduces itself. <laughs> For instance, if you go to bed leaving any Kipple around your apartment, when you wake up the next morning, there's twice as much of it. It always gets more and more. It's a universal principle, he concludes. The entire universe is moving toward a final state of total, absolute kippleization. It was Prime Day on Amazon last week, and I can guarantee you that they sold a whole lot of useless novelty gadgets and whatnot that folks will never use, destined for a growing pile of kipple. These are real products. Dill pickle lip balm. Opposable thumbs that you can attach to your dog's paws. <laughs> a baguette holder that you can strap to your back. Band-aids that look and smell like strips of bacon, ensuring that after you skin your knee, you will also be attacked by raccoons. <laughs> it's all junk. But I suppose it seems harmless enough, right? Is it, though? Or is this just a symptom of a deeper problem, a world that has consumed too much and traded it all away for too little? As Leonard Cohen sang, they whisper still the ancient stones, the blunted mountains weep. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make things cheap. Jesus died, as the story goes, for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Judas, one of his closest disciples, sold him out to the authorities for what amounts to a few weeks of minimum wage work. Now, that's not nothing, but most folks wouldn't sell their best friend for that little. In Mark's gospel, Judas' betrayal notably takes place immediately after this episode in Bethany, where a woman pours expensive oil on Jesus' head as a show of respect and adoration. And we're told that the disciples, Judas specifically, according to the Gospel of John, 
took issue with this waste, claiming that they could have sold the ointment for 300 denarii and given the money to the poor. It illustrates the growing tension between Judas and Jesus and their competing visions of the world. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about poor people. Obviously, that's not true. He advocated for these folks all the time, and he lived in poverty himself. It's that Judas, I think, just takes a more worldly and practical approach to things. He lives in a purely transactional universe where everything and everyone can be bought and sold. I do sympathize with Judas a little. My wife will tell you that I can't go to the store without complaining about what everything costs. $8 for a box of cereal, I've been known to exclaim. When I order McDonald's on DoorDash and they leave out the vanilla shake that I paid $5 for, I get a little upset. For many of us, there's a lot of calculus going on in the back of our minds every time we pull out our wallet. But for Judas, it's not only about the money. It's reasonable to believe that the disciples, Judas included, are expecting big things from Jesus. They're likely hoping that he'll lead an insurrection against Rome. And when Jesus storms the temple and starts overturning tables, it seems like the start of something, like something big's going to happen. But then nothing happens at all. And then Jesus starts talking about how he's going to die. And I can imagine that Judas is feeling pretty disillusioned. Much like my order on DoorDash, he's not getting what he paid for. For Judas, I suspect, power is a matter of force, dominion, and wealth. And for Jesus, it's always been a matter of love. These are two competing visions of the world that we have long lived with. One where everything has a price, and another where the best things are priceless. And even within Christendom, Judas' vision has long prevailed. The wealthy and powerful, many of them Christian, from medieval popes to 21st century preachers with private jets, these folks have always taken advantage of the poor. Indeed, as Jesus predicted in this very text, the poor will always be with you. And he's right. And ever since the British East India Company landed on foreign shores and began enslaving people and stealing their natural resources, we've been living in a world of globalized colonialism, where people in faraway lands are exploited and the earth is stripped of its minerals, its trees, and its water, and its air are poisoned, and for what? For this. You see, this stupid keyboard was made in China, probably in one of those factories that pay workers next to nothing, the kind of place with suicide nets on the roof to keep employees from doing anything rash. It's made of plastic, the product of petrochemicals derived from oil and coal and natural gas feedstocks. The little circuit board inside is probably made from copper, mined from the earth using diesel-powered heavy machinery. Now I realize that copper and plastic are also used for more worthwhile things like life-saving medical devices. I realize that no one burned all of those fossil fuels with the sole intention of building this keyboard. 
My point is that we seldom think about the true cost of manufacturing all this stuff, this, this kipple, and the cost of an economic system that is predicated on endless growth. Forget the keyboard for a moment and consider a much higher quality product, like the beloved Instant Pot. Everyone loves the Instant Pot. It's an electric pressure cooker and it does what it's supposed to do and it's well made and it's durable. Once you buy one, you'll probably never have to buy another one. And that's why Instant Foods, the company that makes it, just filed for bankruptcy last month. In a world of planned obsolescence, Instant Foods has become a warning to other corporations. If you build something that lasts, something that doesn't need to be endlessly disposed of and replaced, you will put yourself out of business. Does that seem right to you? It's sort of mind-boggling, really, once you stop to consider the way this whole system works. Fossil fuels, a limited deposit of ancient fossilized sunlight, are burned to mine materials and produce steel and plastic and forever chemicals that pollute the water and the air and even our own bodies. We use those materials to produce a bunch of stuff, some of it more useful than others, most of which ends up in a landfill because it wasn't built to last, and it can't be built to last because the companies that make them have to demonstrate growth every quarter, and that means they have to keep selling this stuff, literally selling the world one piece at a time. Meanwhile, the planet's systems are choking on carbon emissions and pollution, and the temperature keeps rising. It's important, I think, to recognize that the so-called business-as-usual approach isn't working. It's not working. Something needs to change, and the first thing has to be our perspective. I came across this passage recently um, that illustrates exactly what I mean. It's from a book that I'm hoping to read about near-term climate disaster, Stephen Markley's novel, The Deluge. Getting caught up in causes doesn't interest me, not anymore, especially when you see the scope of what this is. He took the Heinz ketchup bottle from the condiment holder. That's the thing. Most people don't understand this. The ingredients, what it goes on, where the energy comes from to create it, the way the world's got to be directed and coaxed and violated and controlled to get this one little bottle. And once you see how ketchup relates to imperial maintenance, it's tough not to get an overwhelmed quality to your thinking. Like one of them magic eye thingamajobs. Hard the first time, but once you get it, you'll never unsee it. In Matthew's gospel, Judas repents of his betrayal, going back to the Sadducees and throwing the silver coins at their feet before hanging himself. And according to another text, Judas keeps the money and uses it to buy a field. And he's taking a walk in that field one day when he spontaneously explodes. I quote, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 18. Know your Bible. Either way, things do not end well for the man 
who sold far too much for far too little. We have to admit that things aren't going all that well in our world either. I saw a comic strip the other day that depicted a bunch of folks newly arrived in hell, sweating from the nearby flames, but smiling. What are you so happy about? The devil asks one of them. Huh, it was just so hot up there on earth, he replies with visible relief. We've been lucky here in Illinois, in Arizona and Texas, France and Spain and Delhi and Beijing, heat records are being broken daily. Water off the coast of Florida is 97 degrees. According to scientists, last year the oceans absorbed 14 zeta joules of heat, the equivalent of seven atomic bombs per second, every second, for an entire year. Major insurance companies are pulling out of Florida and California, unable to tolerate the increasing risk wildfires and hurricanes. Multiple breadbaskets are facing simultaneous failures. We're shifting into a climate that the world hasn't known in a million years, since before humanity even existed. Friends, the world we know is changing. We can deny it, pretend that it isn't, but it is. It's getting hotter, more unstable, more unpredictable. I'm not gonna pretend that that's good news. Still, there is good news in it, because it offers an opportunity to reimagine what the world could be, to build a better society than the one that we've known. In this text, Judas and Jesus offer two competing visions of the world. Judas inhabits a world that is strictly economic, a world where everything has a price. Whether it's a jar of oil that's worth 300 denarii or a human being, it's worth 30 pieces of silver. It all has a predetermined value, and that value determines everything. That's the same world that we've inherited, a place so corrupt that we can't even begin to fathom the depth of the rot. But Jesus lives in a different world, where grace and love are poured out abundantly, and the word value has a different meaning. It's not about how much something costs, but rather about how precious it is in the eyes of God. And in spite of Judas' efforts, humanity's efforts really, to destroy that vision, it never really died. It bled on the cross, but it walked out of the tomb on Easter morning when the stone was rolled away. Jesus' hope for the world, for the kingdom of God, as he called it, lives on. It lives on in us. If we can imagine a society where God's creation and God's people aren't for sale. Amen.